Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unare. A very good morning and welcome to this hour of Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. On shortwave, we're on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and 15255 kHz on the 90-meter band to Far West Africa on DSTV Audio PK. We're on Channel 902 and we're on the Internet. My name is Asanda Mazaunyane in studio with Onelen Sinzi, Tracy Bumgard and Tammy Kusa to help drive the show. This hour, this is what's coming up. The lawyer representing victims of atrocities committed in Darfur vents his anger against the South African government. The United Nations Children's Fund says infant mortality remains high in Angola and in sports netball South Africa unveils their new head coach. All that's coming up this hour of Africa Rise and Shine. But let's get the news first with Onelen Sinzi. Thank you, Asanda. At least 13 people have been killed and 53 others injured in northeast Nigeria when an explosive device accidentally detonated yesterday. The vigilante had had. The vigilantes had been fighting Boko Haram alongside troops in Marte when one of them picked up the explosive device and brought it back to Monguno. A total of 53 people were injured, of whom 37 were later discharged. South Sudan's former Vice President Riek Machar has called for President Salva Akir to resign next month when his term comes to an end. Machar has been in the bush since 2013 when violence erupted. Giri had accused Machar of planning a coup, a charge Machar has denied. His call comes as the African Union heads of state summit decided on a new peace process that will include all the continent's regional blocs. Machar elaborates. His term comes to end by the ninth, actually the midnight of July 2015. His time is up. He won't be any more... Uh, an elected president, he cannot be described like that. He is not anymore uh, a constitutional president. His time is up. He has deprived the people of South Sudan to go to exercise their will in elections. What he should do now so that peace comes is resign by midnight is July 2015. South Africa says the host country agreement it signed with the African Union compelled it to allow Sudanese President Omar al-Bashir into the country. Al-Bashir attended the three-day Heads of State Summit in Johannesburg last weekend, but he left mysteriously after the High Court in the capital Pretoria ruled that South Africa should enforce the International Criminal Court warrant for al-Bashir's arrest on charges of crimes against humanity. South Africa's International Relations spokesperson Clayson Munyela says the agreement guarantees leaders immunity everybody who took part in the summit was a guest of the African Union uh, in other words they were not visiting South Africa necessarily but they were attending a summit of the African Union and they were granted immunities in terms of the host country agreement you may recall that our minister uh, even gazetted this particular uh, immunities and that's where people could have engaged with those immunities 
Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi has pardoned 165 people, many of them young people, who had been jailed for illegal protests. Nine of these are among the well-known political activists serving multi-year terms for violating a law that dramatically restricted the right to protest after years of turmoil. A crackdown by security forces that began with the deaths of hundreds of supporters of the Islamist Muslim Brotherhood and the imprisonment of thousands more has since been expanded to include the liberal and secular activists who helped to topple Hosni Mubarak in 2011. And finally, more than a billion Muslims worldwide are observing the start of their month-long fast Ramadan. This follows the sighting of the new moon at the Sea Point Promenade last night. Ramadan in the ninth month of the Muslim lunar calendar is regarded as the holiest. South Africa's Muslim Judicial Council First Vice President Sheikh Riyadh. In terms of the Muslims fasting, it would mean that they abstain from all drinking, all eating, all relationships between husband and wife, and from dawn until sunset. That is a period that a Muslim uses to build himself up, build himself up or herself up uh, spiritually. We know that there are physical and medical benefits to the fasting, and that fasting continues for approximately 30 days. Channel Africa News, I'm Onelin Tsinti. This is Africa Rise and Shine. You're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Good morning to you. Thanks for tuning in and thanks to Onele there for that news update. My name is Asanda Matsaunyani, your host for the show. A lawyer representing the victims of atrocities committed in Darfur believes the fight or the flight of President Omar al-Bashir from South Africa suggests the ANC government is a lawless regime that is corrupt in the deepest and most profound way. Speaking exclusively to SABC News in New York, Raymond Brown, who is part of the who as part of the International Justice Project represents 11 victims recognized by the International Criminal Court in proceedings related to crimes in accused the government of rejecting a fundamental principle of a constitutional democracy. Show and Price Peace reports. Raymond Brown's case at the ICC has been stalled pending the arrest of President Bashir, who has evaded the execution of the ICC arrest warrant since 2009. The attorney for Darfuri victims had tough words for the South African government, who stands accused of letting President Bashir slip away out of their grasp. It suggests it's a lawless regime. It suggests it's a regime that is corrupt in the deepest and most profound way. Not necessarily about money, though um, that may be the case, but about a disregard for the fundamental principle that democracy has to be hedged by a constitutional regime which provides limits on what government can do. And they have defied the limits of their own regime, which leads the reasonable observer to say it isn't so much for them to defy an international regime of which they're a part. Despite his outrage, he said events in Johannesburg had galvanized many into action and brought the issue of Darfur back into the international spotlight. But he argued it did little for the South African government's reputation as a defender of the rule of law. He called the actions a significant blow to efforts to challenge the rich and powerful. Current heads of state 
who for a variety of motives not so noble seek to hide a man who's an accused genocidaire for crimes committed against Africans. Crimes committed against the Fur and the Mesalit and the Zagawa peoples who are African peoples. Um, that's not a pro-African stance. And that there would be a variety of, of opinions among the peoples of Africa, not so surprising. It's a place with fertile tradition, a long tradition of anti-colonialism. But to wrap yourselves in the mantle of anti-colonialism in order to shelter Omar al-Bashir, you've got to sleep long and hard to, to really countenance that. And additionally, if you're a, a, a stalwart of the ANC, to use that mantle to protect this man is something that ought to cause you to lose sleep at night. Brown says he wishes his own country, the United States, would join the Rome Statute, but dismissed the argument that one alleged violation of law should excuse another. Considering what Bashir has been accused of and responsible... Co-founder of the International Justice Project, Wanda Akin, who also represents the Darfuru victims at the ICC, talked about the irony of allowing President Bashir to attend an AU summit dedicated to the empowerment of women. The fact that the AU summit was to focus on women and women's empowerment was a double blow to many of our victims who are women and children. And considering what Bashir has been accused of and responsible for in the Darfur in particular, you know, mass rapes uh, and burning of homes mm. and the stealing and looting of heirlooms that are so sacred to these women, uh, it is just abominable that he used the excuse of attending such a summit focused on women to deprive women of justice. The attorneys also warned that South Africa could now face censure for non-compliance by the ICC and parties to the Rome Statute while praising the South African judiciary for its principled stance in the matter currently before it. I'm Sherman Bricepees in New York. Meanwhile, South Africa's Department of International Relations has defended the country's decision to allow Sudanese President Omar al-Bashir to leave the country while a court order was in place prohibiting him from travelling back to Khartoum. Spokesperson Clayson Monyela says South Africa signed a host country agreement with the African Union and part of it entailed granting privileges and immunities to the delegates attending the summit. The reaction comes amid reports that South African peacekeeping forces in Sudan were held hostage by that country's army in case their president was detained while in South Africa. Fenwell Schumer reports. On Monday, the High Court in Pretoria gave the government of South Africa, in particular the ministers of Home Affairs and that of State Security, seven days to furnish the court with reasons on how and why al-Bashir left the country. Al-Bashir, who attended the AU summit in Johannesburg, is wanted by the international courts to stand trial for genocide, war crimes and human rights violations in Darfur. This is after the Human Rights Advocacy Group, the South African Litigation Center, lodged an urgent application in the High Court on Sunday requesting his arrest for his role in war crimes that claimed over half a million Sudanese people. The ICC has since 2009 issued two warrant of arrests against him, but all without success. Munyela explains South Africa's position on the matter. Technically, uh, we were merely providing a venue, but this is an African Union summit. Everybody who took part in the summit was a guest of the African Union. In other words, they were not visiting South Africa necessarily but they were attending a summit of the African Union. 
the heads of state, the ministers and everyone, they were here per invitation of the African Union. And they were granted immunities in terms of the host country agreement. You may recall that our minister uh, even gazetted this particular uh, immunities. Monyela has refuted claims by the media that the South African peacekeeping forces in Sudan were held hostage by the country's military personnel, hence Al-Bashem was allowed to travel back home. He referred to the reports as a case of fiction that is reported as fact. The Department of uh, Defense, the United Nations, have both uh, responded to say that uh, this story is false, untrue, and baseless. Uh, It's unfortunate that uh, some people uh, get into the habit of uh, reporting fiction as fact. It's absolutely not true. It was never such a thing. However, Munyela was not at liberty to dwell much on the court order that the High Court issued against the Sudanese president. Well, that matter is still subjudicated. If you recall, the court has given the South African government a number of days, about six, seven days, to respond to that. So we'll not get into the merits uh, of that particular matter because it's before the courts. Munyela says the AU summit, which ended in Johannesburg this week, has gone a long way in achieving its intended objectives despite the controversy that came with President Al-Bashir's presence. Fanuel Schuma in Pretoria. African leaders have agreed to send military experts to Burundi, which has been rocked by weeks of violence over the president's controversial bid for a third term. The African Union's Peace and Security Commissioner, Smail Chegui, told reporters at the recently ended African Unit Summit in Johannesburg, South Africa, that they are hoping to deploy at least 50 military experts. Since surviving a coup attempt last month, President Pierre Nkurunziza has faced international pressure to reconsider his attempt to stay in power, which diplomats fear could plunge the country into war. Tlantla Matlangu reports. The unrest in Burundi has left about 40 people dead and scores injured, mostly in the capital, Bunjumbura. More than 100,000 people have fled the violence to neighboring countries. Parliamentary elections are planned for the 29th of June, ahead of presidential polls scheduled for the 15th of July. Both polls were postponed following weeks of demonstrations that were brutally suppressed by police and a failed coup attempt by a section of the army. Speaking at a briefing on the sidelines of the just-ended African Union Summit, Dr. Aisha Laraba Abdullahi, the Commissioner for Political Affairs at the African Union Commission, says the issue of third-term bids by some leaders on the continent remains a major concern for the African Union Commission. We had been very vocal, and not just the African Union, but with our partners, the UN and the regional economic communities concerned, to ensure that uh, we discourage this bid of the third term mandate because it doesn't augur well for most of our member states. However, some of the um, our constitutions, our national constitutions, provide for grey areas. So we need to work harder to ensure that uh, in constitution making, in constitutional uh, reforms, we ensure that these things are strictly adhered to so that uh, the aspirants of a third term may not have loopholes or grey areas to exploit. She says the African Union Commission will only send observers for the upcoming polls if conditions for peaceful and credible elections exist. Well, the AU has been engaging with Burundi for over a year now, and uh, we made it very clear to Burundi for some time now that um, 
until the conditions for peaceful, credible elections prevail in Burundi, we shall not observe the elections. This has been made very clear, and uh, consequently, we have uh, a mediation process going on in Burundi, and we look forward to a positive outcome of that mediation process. But as for now, this remains our position that uh, we will only observe is if conditions for peaceful, credible, participatory elections exist, because that way accepting the results will become less of a problem. The Burundi Election Commission last Friday approved all eight candidates who put themselves forward for the upcoming presidential poll, including Gurunziza and his leading opponent, Agathon Ruasa. Despite being cleared to contest the election, Ruasa is reportedly keeping open the possibility of an opposition boycott. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Tlantla Matlangu in Johannesburg. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. This is Africa Rise and Shine, and here on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Good morning to you on this Thursday. Thanks for tuning into our show. Children in Yemen are facing what's been described by the UN Children's Fund, UNICEF, as a catastrophic situation, while consultations on the future of the Gulf state continue in Geneva. An increasing number of children are dying as the fighting there escalates. Yemen has suffered turmoil and instability after rebels seized the capital Sana'a last September, driving the government into exile. Julian Harnais, the UNICEF representative in Yemen, elaborates. The situation in Yemen is, is catastrophic. You have a, a conflict which is having both direct impact on children. What are the major cause in the increase of uh, children victim in Yemen? So far in the last 10 weeks, 279 children have, been, have died as a result of the fighting and 402 have been injured. Now, that's across the country. About 70% of those children have died during aerial bombardments and uh, the majority of the remainder, so about 30%, have died in, in street fighting. What is UNICEF doing to alleviate some of the suffering? We're working across the country, providing uh, water, uh, which is a big big challenge. We estimate up to 20 million people are in a precarious situation when it comes to access to drinking water. So we are providing fuel to water pumping stations across the country so that we can provide uh, water to up to a million people, providing Supplies for health and nutrition, again, across the country. Vaccine support, which is a big challenge. Support to the cold chain, but also support to be able to do vaccination across the country. And then um, we're looking at uh, child protection, which is trying to pass messages to children in those areas where there's the worst fighting to how to avoid the risks of, of unexploded ordnance and, and remnants of war. Do you expect any humanitarian pause in the occasion of uh, the holy month of Ramadan? We call upon all parties to observe a humanitarian pause, as the Secretary-General has done. We think it's absolutely essential to allow children to be protected, to advance the well-being of children. I can't say whether or not that will happen, but you know, we very much wish it will happen. Should it not happen, we will nonetheless continue to provide assistance for children in Yemen across the country. Now that the consultations on Yemen are taking place in Geneva, what would you ask from the participant in these talks? 
a humanitarian pause so that we can provide assistance across the country, and that pause has to be of a sufficient duration that we're able to, and sufficient coverage that we're able to do vaccination campaigns, and that, that takes a couple of weeks. So we need a pause of a month. The second thing is, during fighting, the civilian nature of schools and hospitals has to be observed, and children should not be die as a result of this conflict. All parties to the conflict have to be, pay far greater attention um, to how they conduct the conflict. No child should be dying through bombs and bullets in Yemen today. That's Julian Hanais, the UNICEF representative in Yemen, talking to UN Radio's May Yaqub. The South African government says it has paid millions of dollars from its employment tax incentive scheme to those employers who hired young job seekers over the last year. This has been revealed by Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa, who replied to oral questions in the National Council of Provinces. Ramaphosa also managed to escape answering questions about the release of the Marikana Commission report and the Omar al-Bashir debacle. Mercedes Percent reports. The Employment Tax Incentive Scheme is meant to subsidize employers to reduce the cost to those companies that are hiring young job seekers. Ramaphosa says while it's too early to assess the successes of the scheme, initial evidence shows that the incentive scheme is bearing fruit. Preliminary data indicates that 31,825 employers have claimed approximately 2.8 billion rand between the implementation of the incentive on 1 January 2014 and the end of February 2015. In the month of August 2014, for which the largest amount was claimed, we can project that employers claimed the incentive for at least 274,000 employees in that month. The deputy president says youth unemployment is a global challenge that is not only affecting South Africa. However, he says more efforts have to be made to address it. The challenge of unemployment is a worldwide challenge. It's not only unique to South Africa, and the challenge of youth unemployment is a global problem. Nearly every country faces this challenge of youth unemployment. And the real issue that should be asked is, are you doing enough as a country to get your young people in employment positions? We would like to believe that we are doing as much as we can. Obviously, much more can be done. On the question of labor brokering, Ramaphosa warned that any form of exploitation by labor brokers will not be allowed. If there are incidents of uh, labor broking that violates our people's rights, we would be most welcome to hear those views so that they can be dealt with quickly as possible. During the oral reply session, the DA's William Julius tried to slip in a supplementary question about how Sudanese President Omar al-Bashir managed to slip out of the country without the knowledge of government. But NCOP chairperson Tandi Mudise saved the deputy president from answering the question, saying the matter was still sub judice. In this particular instance, I exercised my authority not to allow that question because, as I explained to the House, that matter is in the courts. There is an investigation. But Julius still disagreed with Mudise. I get the feeling that the ANC came here to shield the president from answering questions. 
The public wants to know why President El Bashir left the country. Why you flouted our constitution? Honorable Julius. That's what we want to know. But you came here to shield the deputy president as always. Honorable Julius, the question you put is a question which was not disallowed because it was not, it was not formulated in the right way. It is a question which I disallowed because, because it is a matter which is which the courts have ordered an investigation. The deputy president also managed to evade answering questions about the long-awaited release of the Marikana report. EFF MP Lien Mateis attempted to bring an urgent motion to question Ramaphosa on whether he has officially or unofficially received a copy of the report. Mateis, who raised the motion at the end of the deputy president's oral reply session, was told by Mudise that the motion was not urgent. It is common cause that there is a report here, Marika. It is also common cause that committees of parliament will deal with that matter. It therefore cannot be, by the widest imagination, be said to be an agent or directly concerning this matter. Please, you are advised. Put that in a question because you cannot use Rule 81 to bring up the issue of Marika. It is not urgent, it is not unscheduled, it is a matter which will come. Our workers were murdered in Marikana and we have a report that's just lying there that we don't know. This was Ramaphosa's last oral reply session for this quarter before parliament breaks for the winter recess period. And today, President Jacob Zuma will also have his last opportunity for this quarter to answer oral questions in the National Assembly at 2 o'clock this afternoon. That report by Mercedes Percent. Swiss investigators are busy looking into 53 possible cases of money laundering at FIFA, but the investigation is likely to last a long time because they're having to wade their way through nine terabytes of information they've received from various Swiss banks. Janet Witten reports. Swiss Attorney General Michael Laber says he's held a news conference because of the enormous international interest in the investigation, but the details of whose accounts they're looking at and how many people are being investigated is not something he's prepared to divulge. I am well aware of the enormous public interest in our investigation. Equally enormous is the public interest in an independent criminal procedure. Our investigation is of great complexity and quite substantial. To give you an example, the OAG has seized around nine terabytes of data. So far, our investigative team obtained evidence concerning 104 banking relations. And be aware that every banking relation represents several bank accounts. Lauber's main reasoning for keeping details out of the public domain is so that evidence cannot be suppressed or destroyed. But he has said they are in the process of analysing a massive amount of data, much of it gleaned from the 104 reports of suspicious banking activity they've received. It would not be professional to communicate to you today a detailed timetable. The world of football needs to be patient. By its nature, this investigation will take more than the legendary 90 minutes. There will be formal interviews of all relevant people. By definition, 
This does not exclude interviewing the president of FIFA, and this does not exclude interviewing the secretary-general of FIFA. He also stressed that at this stage FIFA is still an injured party. He confirms they started the investigation based on a report from FIFA itself and also on a mutual legal assistance request from the United States. Earlier this week, U.S. prosecutors made public their 2013 plea agreement with Chuck Blazer, revealing that the former FIFA executive committee member had been secretly providing authorities information for nearly two years before he admitted guilt. Blazer secretly pleaded guilty in November 2013 to 10 counts, including conspiracy to commit racketeering, wire fraud and money laundering. According to a redacted transcript of his plea hearing, Blazer admitted that he and other officials took bribes in connection with the 1998 and 2010 World Cups. He agreed to help the FBI because he could have faced up to 75 years in jail. More importantly, part of the deal includes his agreement to testify against anyone at FIFA at a possible future trial. Besides former CONCACAF head Jack Warner, another person frequently mentioned in connection with bribery allegations is CAF President Issa Hayatou, but he has denied ever taking a bribe in an interview with a French magazine. I'm Janet Witten in Johannesburg. Africa, Africa, wake up. Africa, Africa, réveille-toi. Africa, Africa, wema. It's 6 o'clock, it is 6 o'clock du matin. Sunrise, the happen Africa? Africa, Dumelang, San Bonani. Africa, Mulishadi, Pulibanj. Africa, Africa, happen Africa? It doesn't matter where you come from. Lesotho, Kenya, Zambia, Ghana, Nigeria, Tanzania, Congo, Liberia, Togo, Ethiopia, DRC, South Africa. Swaziland, Morocco, Botswana, Gabon, Tunisia, Zambia, Egypt, Madagascar, Angola, Zimbabwe, Mauritania, Senegal, Sierra Leone, Liberia, Algeria, Cameroon. It doesn't matter where you're from, we are one people. Channel Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is DJ Cleo with G Exploits from Nigeria. 8.30 Central African Time here on Africa Rise and Shine. Let's get news headlines with Onel Nsinzi. Chad bans the full-face Muslim veil, ordering security forces to seed burqas from markets and burn them. Vigilantes fighting Bokram accidentally detonate an explosive device, killing 13 people in northeast Nigeria. And Liberia launches a five-year study to unravel the mystery of the long-term health effect that affects the people of Liberia. Channel Africa News. Thanks, Oneli. South Africa's power utility, ESCOM, says it managed to supply 96% of electricity in the country during the first half of 2015, despite load shedding. Brian Molefe is ESCOM 
acting chief executive. He was speaking to the media in Johannesburg at ESCOM's quarterly system briefing. He says ESCOM still has to deal with an aging infrastructure and that the cold front has increased electricity demands. He says the power utility will also increase maintenance during winter without load shedding. Mulefe has announced that there are no prospects of a total blackout in the country. Here's Amina Akram. A confident brand Mulefe says he is positive that ESCOM will keep the lights on this winter. The acting CEO unveiled what he calls a new strategy to curb load shedding. ESCOM has been implementing stage one and stage two load shedding around the country in the past few weeks. Molefe says they have developed a way of planning maintenance on their generators with minimum or no load shedding. Even when we have load shedding, uh, we are able to provide electricity to uh, 96% of the country and this is what we have done in the first half of the year what we are going to try and do differently now is to do uh, maintenance with no or minimal load shedding we still have a uh, an aging and volatile plant that contributes to a lot of the unknowns in our daily operations we will perform during winter about 5,500 megawatts of plant maintenance. And, uh, and this is three times more, than, more maintenance than we have done in the previous winters. The power utility has also announced that load shedding stages have been amended. Stage one is still a shortage of 1,000 megawatts. Stage two is still a shortage of 2,000 megawatts. However, hitherto or before now, Stage 3 was only declared when we had a shortage of 4,000 megawatts. From now on, Stage 3 will be declared when we have a shortage of 3,000 megawatts and not 4,000 megawatts. This is just, a, uh, just to reduce the gap between Stage 2 and Stage 3. Molefe says they plan to avoid load shedding during working hours to avoid impacting businesses. Residents should expect power cuts at peak times before 10 a.m. and after 5 p.m. ESCOM says it managed to reduce stage 3 load shedding in the first quarter of this year. The winter of 2015 is projected to be colder than the, the, the previous winter with a higher de- expected demand in electricity during peak periods. We, anticip- we anticipate to supply 100% of electricity most of the days and 96% during peak periods from 6 a.m. to 10 a.m. and 5 p.m. to 10 p.m. So when we do have load shedding, 96% of electricity will be available. Uh, only 4% will be, 4% of the country will be affected at any one point in time. Molefe also clarified the company's position on tariff increases. He says they have applied for additional funds for the purchase of diesel, which he says they desperately need to avoid load shedding. Our actual application is actually 6.8%. Then we applied for additional money for diesel to avoid load shedding. And we were only granted about 0.1% or 1.5 billion. 1.5 billion for diesel to avoid load shedding during this period is simply not enough. 1.5 billion is what we use in one month. In fact, it is finished. We have also been granted 14.4 billion for uh, IPPs, renewables. But when people talk about the 24%, they also include this 4%, 
which is a clawback from the previous year. Nobody is pointing this out to South African consumers. Independent power producers contribute about 1,800 megawatts when the system is constrained. Renewable energy contributes 1,300 megawatts. The power utility says it lost around 800 megawatts of electricity to the power grid from solar energy as a result of cloud cover from the Northern Cape. Eskom says illegal connection also increases during the winter seasons. The company is currently undertaking 280 billion rand capital expenditure program over five years. It is also building two of the biggest coal-fired power plants in Africa. That report by Amina Akram. Delays to address aviation safety issues could put Malawi's airports at risk of being blacklisted by the International Civil Aviation Organization. Such delays are contrary to Chicago Convention and International Civil Aviation Convention, which entered into force on April 4, 1944, and was ratified by 191 countries worldwide, including Malawi. George Mango reports from Blantyre. This comes days after Minister of Finance, Economic Planning and Development, Kuto Gondwe, warned that Malawi's airports risk being blacklisted due to poor safety aviation standards. Gondwe said this at a signing of a financing agreement for the longer water efficiency project by the European Union Investment Bank and the Malawi government in context of opposition members of parliament rejecting a loan authorization bill last week. Initially, the bill was meant to allow government to borrow 20 million US dollars from the bank to upgrade aviation safety and security equipment at Kamuzu and Chileka airports, but opposition MPs shot down the bill, saying it lacked critical and sufficient information. As it stands now, Malawi's civil aviation authorities in Longwe say government ratified to the civil aviation safety issues with regards to the convention on September 11, 1964. Various business captains and tourists say electrical voltage system at Kamuzu International Airport has outlived its lifespan, something that can scare away tourists and other travelers. My name is Watpason Zungu Jr. I stay in Blantyre. Uh, as one of the travelers, I would like to agree with uh, that uh, decision to blacklist our airports for a simple reason. It is better to prevent than to cure. I believe that those people or those organizations that are calling for the blacklisting of our airports are not doing it out of ill will, but to protect lives of the people that are traveling or are using these airports. What could be the best way of ensuring that these airports are meeting the civil aviation standards globally? Malawi has got no choice except to repair or to even construct new airports so that uh, we maintain uh, the tourists that are coming to Malawi. Otherwise, there's no reason why a tourist would come to Malawi while he or she knows quite well that he or she is risking his or her life. So the best that Malawi government can do is to improve the conditions of our airports. Otherwise, we should forget about attracting tourists using uh, substandard airport facilities. I know that most of the times 
these issues are never taken seriously or we would have government saying they will look for funding elsewhere yet we have money within the country that is totally um, uncalled for i would like to ask government to utilize the resources that we have in the country to uh, develop our uh, civil aviation the Department of Civil Aviation Director Alfred M. Tiladila said under Chicago Convention each and every year international experts conduct an audit to verify whether Malawi as a country is complying with required standards. He singled out the fact that when one travels from Malawi's airports to, for example, Tanzania, Mozambique and South Africa, their airports are of good standards. Meanwhile, the European Union head delegation in Malawi has examined the investment proposal to help Malawi's aviation safety issues at the country's main airports. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zola. Africa, Amuka na Unai. This is Africa Rise and Shine here on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Good morning. South Africa's Minister in the Presidency, Jeff Khadebe, has warned that the inaugural Vision 2030 summit currently underway in the country's city of Johannesburg should not be about whether the country's national development plan is the right plan for the country or not. Khadebe officially opened the event yesterday, which has gathered private and public sector officials to reflect on a plan that aims to create about 11 million jobs by the year 2030. The summit is taking place amid criticism by the country's trade union movement movements that this plan officially adopted in 2012 is overly ambitious. Selena Dubong reports. The National Development Plan, a long-term map that aims to eradicate poverty and economic inequalities in South Africa, was approved following a series of consultations with a number of the country's public and private sector stakeholders in 2012. Part of the plan is to introduce active labor market policies and incentives to grow employment, particularly for young people and in sectors employing relatively low-skilled people and to expand public employment programs. Minister in the Presidency Jeff Khadebe says the plan is well underway and is promising to yield positive results for the country. He says evidence on the ground suggests that this plan will be beneficial in the long run. Since 2009, we have been allocating more than 800 billion rand in the rolling medium-term expenditure framework towards infrastructure. By the end of 2014, our government had spent almost one trillion rand in developing the much-needed infrastructure in our country. This expenditure was in areas such as energy, water infrastructure, sanitation, rail, road base, public transport, hospital revitalization, amongst others. But the country's trade unions outright rejected this plan from the beginning, saying that it fails to face the real issues of the country and that the plan is overly ambitious. The worker representatives, mainly under the leadership of the country's trade union, COSADUM, have called for the reindustrialization of the economy with manufacturing at the same time. COSADUM says the plan as it stands relies mainly on exports 
and says the plan uses low poverty measures per person. Another bone of contention is that the NDP proposes low quality and unsustainable jobs, particularly small to medium enterprises, as well as jobs in the service sector. Khadebe took the opportunity at the opening of the summit to refute those claims. It will be a wasted opportunity if this important platform and forum is used simply to complain, find fault, or debate whether the NDP is the correct plan for the country. The NDP, I call it a train, that train has left the station a long time ago. Our attention must now focus firmly on the implementation, on learning, on adapting and making improvements as we progress with the implementation of the National Development Plan. All these projects are structured, they are financed by both foreign and local investment companies, including South African banking institutions. Yet, this narrative is allowed to gain so much popularity. John Matwasa, founding member of submarine cable operator SECOM, says the NDP's implementation is far gone for people to be criticizing its ambitions. He says what should happen instead is to have a dialogue about how different sectors can play their part. It is something that we have adopted. It is something that we are implementing. I think that the greatest opportunity that this conference presents to the delegates and the attendees is looking at ways in which they can participate in the implementation of the NDP. I think that there's a huge opportunity for private enterprise, like ourselves, the private sector, to look at how we can augment the state's capability in delivering on the National Development Plan. Note, I say delivering. I still believe that there is a bit of tweaking that needs to be done around the planning. I still believe that there is an opportunity for us to ensure that the end result is a result that satisfies the masses of our people and adds economic value and results in economic growth. However, I do not think that this is the opportunity for us to decide whether or not we're doing it. I think that the resources have already been put behind the NDP and I think that those resources are capable Fani Kaba, business development manager of an international infrastructure development company, Uricon, says South Africa has a long history of good policies, but still dismally fails to implement and says that this will probably be the only downfall of this plan. We've got more than enough resources. We, we need just good leadership, good management, and better management of the resources we have. There is no any other place we would like to replace than where we are now. That was Fanny Kaba, business development manager at Uricon. And for Channel Africa, I am Selina Ntobong in Johannesburg. It's 8.46 now here on Africa Rise and Shine. It's time for economics news. Good morning, I'm Tracy Bumgard. The Bapo Mohale community near Britain, South Africa's northwest province, and platinum producer Lonman have reached an agreement after nearly a week of violent protests in the area. 
Under the agreement, the community will benefit from the mine's $12 million development fund. The mine will also train 500 people. They will earn around $403 a month. Bopo Bamokhale Investment Company CEO Lechlohonono Ntonto. We are happy for, for the current agreement. However, it is imperative for us to note that um, it is regrettable of the unintended consequences of the unrest. But we hope that as leadership uh, going forward, we'll work together to accelerate implementation of agreements that will lead to fast implementation of um, you know, disagreements uh, for job creation and other socio-economic um, improvements. South Africa's finance minister Ntlantla Nene says the next few years will be difficult for many emerging economies to attract investment. He was speaking at the third Commonwealth Stakeholders Conference in Johannesburg. Nene says developing countries like South Africa will have to show good governance and stable fiscal framework to attract investment. The finance minister delivered the opening address at the event at which 35 Commonwealth countries are represented. An expansionary fiscal stance supported the economy since the financial crisis in 2008, but this countercyclical approach has reached its limits. Our fiscal stance is underpinned by three principles of countercyclicality, intergenerational equity, and long-term debt sustainability. In line with this, government has committed itself to reducing the budget deficit and, and stabilizing debt despite weaker growth and domestic growth by reducing government spending and increasing revenue. The energy-intensive user group of Southern Africa has warned that a second double-digit increase in electricity tariffs proposed for this year will make it difficult for South African businesses to compete internationally. The group, which represents major companies in South Africa, including Anglo Gold Ashanti and BHP Billington, is opposing Eskom's proposed tariff increases. It will make its submissions to energy regulator NURSA at a hearing on the proposed hikes next week. Eskom has already been granted a tariff hike of over 12%, but is seeking a further increase of the same amount. Eskom's acting CEO, Brian Molefe, defended the proposed hike at a briefing yesterday. Our actual application is actually 6.8%. Then we applied for additional money for diesel to avoid load shedding. And we were only granted about 0.1% or 1.5 billion. 1.5 billion for diesel to avoid load shedding during this period is simply not enough. 1.5 billion is what we use in one month. In fact, it is finished. We have also been granted 14.4 billion for uh, IPPs, renewables. But when people talk about the 24%, they also include this 4% which is a clawback from the previous year. Nobody is pointing this out to South African consumers. The insurance industry can be central in building a more resilient, climate-smart economy. United Nations Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon was speaking at a gathering of the Global Insurance Forum, which is gathering hundreds of insurance executives, regulatory authorities and academics. Ban says the insurance industry can play an important role, especially in helping to ease the financial burden associated with disasters. The insurance sector is well-placed to be a leader in risk-sensitive investment. As a major source of investment, much of it long-term, 
The insurance sector can and must play a strong role in shaping a more sustainable future for all of us. Namibia's central bank has lifted its benchmark lending rate by 25 basis points to 6.5%, saying it wants to contain high growth in household credit. The bank says it expects the rate change to encourage deposit-taking institutions to increase their lending rates by the same margin. Taking a look at the financial indicators, the South African Rand is trading at 12.38 US dollars, 9.83 Botswana Pulas, and at 7.36 Zambian Kwacha. It is also trading at 0.64 to the British pound and at 0.89 to the euro. In the commodities market, gold is trading at $1,179 and platinum at $1,073 an ounce. Finally, the price of Brent crude oil is at $63.75 a barrel. It's time for Sports News Now with Tammy Kluza. Thanks for joining us once again. Netball South Africa has officially announced World Cup winning coach Norma Plummer as the new head coach of the Spa Protis. Plama is no stranger to South Africa, and she says that when she was approached by South Africa, she just couldn't refuse the offer. Well, firstly, I'd like to say I did get a bit of a shock when I got the phone call, um, sitting home having wine on the table, watching the telly, watching a bit of the ANZ, and uh, all of a sudden um, I did get a phone call to ask if I would consider it. And I'm delighted to say that um, the approach had came, because... Uh, you have so much talent and the girls are so hungry for success um, that I'm delighted to be given the opportunity to try and show the way. It's going to be a big ask. I'm only into day five. You have the Australian coach who's had five years. Uh, even Malawi coach has had three years, so we're, we're improved even over a couple of days. But um, we won't get ahead of ourselves. There's an awful lot of work to do. Netball South Africa president Dumimim Teto says that they are thrilled to have the to have the Australian on board. So I can safely say now, uh, Norma Plama is our spa protocol coach, and she is going to be the head coach uh, taking the team to the World Cup, and we are very pleased to welcome her as a uh, one of the you know really really uh, valuable people in netball with uh, a lot of experience. Swiss banks have noted 53 possible money laundering incidents in the investigation of FIFA's 2018 and 2022 World Cup bidding contest. That's according to the country's Attorney General Michael Loba. Loba says that the suspicious bank relations are reported within the framework of Switzerland's anti-money laundering regulations. And he says that it does not exclude interviewing FIFA President Seblatter and Secretary General Jerome Falke in future, though neither of them are currently under suspension. We are facing a complex investigation with many international implications. The prosecution is ongoing and will take time. It would not be professional 
to communicate to you today a detailed timetable. The world of football needs to be patient. By its nature, this investigation will take more than the legendary 90 minutes. To give you an example, the OAG has seized around 9 terabytes of data. So far, our investigative team obtained evidence concerning 104 banking relations. And be aware that every banking relation represents several bank accounts. There will be formal interviews of all relevant people. By definition, this does not exclude interviewing the president of FIFA, and this does not exclude interviewing the secretary general of FIFA. And finally, in tennis, Ireland has announced their best team to face seeded South Africa this July in the regulation playoffs of the Euro-Africa Zone Group 2 Davis Cup time. The title we played from July the 17th until the 19th will be staged just outside of Pretoria at the Irene Country Club. Ireland's non-playing captain, Conor Nyland, nominated his four best players, including the highest-ranked Irish player on the ATP World Tour, James McGee, for their away time. That's the end of our sport. Stay tuned to Channel Africa and back to Asanda Matsaunyane. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Tammy. Let's recap our top stories now. The lawyer representing victims of atrocities committed in Darfur vents his anger against the South African government. The United Nations Children's Fund says infant mortality remains high in Angola and in sports netball, South Africa unveils their new head coach. Well, that's where we end Africa Rise and Shine on this Thursday. Thank you so much for tuning in. Remember to send us your comments about our show. You can email info at channelafrica.org or find us on Twitter at Rise Shine Africa. For me, Asanda Matsaunyane, it's goodbye and the rest of the team. And uh, here's Ringo Mahlingosi taking us to the top of the hour now. We And Oliver Mtukutsi with a song titled Indoyam.